Okay. I, I always feel bad at this point in the service because I have to interrupt you all when you're getting good conversations and good family stuff going on. So um, as always, carry on chatting away. So I don't know if you noticed, but big things happened in the world this week. There was big news. Uh, not, of course, talking about schools reopening, not talking about stimulus payments, not talking about other things to do with COVID. Of course, I am talking about Meghan, Harry, and Oprah this week, right? Anyone else watch that? Oh, dear. I, I got to say, you know, uh, Harry, as one ginger British dude living in Southern California in his 30s, to maybe the only other ginger British dude in his 30s living in Southern California, um, I think you may have done some damage to the special relationship, uh, you and your wife, between our two beautiful nations that has been forged over many hundreds of years. Um, I have got to get my visa renewed in the next few months. I feel like I might be in some sort of trouble now uh, getting a US visa um, to work here. Um, of course, I'm joking on most of those things. Um, but I think what we have witnessed, haven't we, and what that little interview witnessed is the fact that relationships can be hard, right? Relationships can be hard, whether it's relationships with our families, uh, royal families, relationships with our colleagues, relationships with our siblings, with our parents, like whatever it might be, relationships can be hard. And over the last 18 months, particularly, like we, we've seen the strain of relationships, haven't we? We've seen it in so many different parts of our society. I uh, bumped into a guy who is uh, a dad at my kid's school uh, a couple of months back. He's a divorce lawyer. And I said, like, oh, gosh, how are you guys doing during COVID? To which he replied, business has been fantastic. Um, <laughs> I, I, I will confess publicly that I felt like punching him in the face. Um, I did not punch him in the face. Um, but that's what it's been like. All the stats will tell you that that's how it has been over the last uh, 18 months or so during this COVID time. So today, as we are in this series thinking about firm foundations, thinking about what it means to kind of outwork our faith, outwork the things that God calls us to from Scripture, from prayer, from worship, in the real world, we're going to be in the second phase, second week on relationships, and we're going to ask the question, what happens when relationships go bad? How do we reconcile? How do we find uh, hope and peace in relationships? And we're going to do it with one of the most incredible passages of Scripture that exists. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if you've got your Bibles on a phone, smartphone, tablet, device, book, papyrus, whatever else you got, uh, Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Well, hello, Vintage family. My name is Carla. I will be reading Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 in the NIV. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Great. Thank you, Carla. So the book of Philippians is a book written to resolve conflict. If you go to Philippians chapter 4, you read about two ladies, uh, sisters in the church or sisters in Christ in the church who have a conflict. We don't know what the conflict is. We don't know what the situation is. We don't know what's happened. But we know that there's conflict. And within the life of the church, people are not getting on really well. And so Philippians is a book written by Paul to resolve, to deal with this conflict. Now, the amazing thing about this book is that it starts in a really, this Philippians 2 argument starts in a really interesting place. Um, If you've ever uh, studied the New Testament, you'll know that there's these particular high moments of theology, these really dense, complicated, beautiful, fantastic passages, which reveal so much about God's nature and his character. Um, Romans chapter 8 is definitely one of those passages. Philippians 2 is one of those passages. And it's one of those passages because it reveals to us the doctrine of the incarnation, if you've ever studied theology. The doctrine of incarnation basically reveals who Jesus was, what he came to do, what the nature of Jesus was. Um, If you look in verse chapter 6, the clue is right there. Jesus, who being in very nature God. So before you can do anything else, you have to know this. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Now, that's probably not like the most you know, earth-shattering thing to say to you guys who come to church on a Sunday morning, but this was an absolutely astonishing phrase in the early church. Verse 6 to verse 11 were probably not even written by Paul. They were actually a little statement of faith that came right after Jesus um, was on earth, and giving that nature, the incarnational nature of who Jesus was. That the guy who came to earth 2,000 years ago who died on a cross was not just a nice guy who did some nice things and died a sad death. He was fully the same God, the creator of the universe. Uh, the, The word is morphe in the Greek, which means that Jesus was of the essence of God, the same essence, had the same qualities. He was the same substance and being of God. Now, that was a huge statement. If you were a Jewish person in the first century, the sense that Jesus, this man, could be God, just kind of blew away all their ideas that God was Yahweh, just above all things and and out there. Um, In the same way, if you were kind of Roman or a a Gentile, you might have been okay with the idea that people could be a bit God-like in a kind of new agey way, but it would have blown your mind that the idea that Jesus, this man, was also fully God. Now, what has that got to do with resolving conflict, you may well ask this morning. Well, it has two huge things to do with resolving conflict. The first thing is, is that it really helps us to understand about the relationship that we have with the divine. Now, if you ever think about God, and I don't know if you, how often you do think about God, and you think about what it means to be united with Christ, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, what it means to live in relationship with Christ, two things are true of what we've just heard. The first thing is that if Jesus was fully human, it means that actually Jesus has experienced the things that we experience. You know, if we have terrible problems in our relationships, if we mourn, if we are misunderstood, if we are lied to, if we are cheated, if we find it hard, then here's the thing. Jesus had those things too. When Jesus comes, he says, come to me, all who are weary. He says, come to me, all who are heavy laden. Jesus loves us. Jesus understands us, and Jesus can empathize with us because he's been where we've been. 
But the other thing is true, which is that Jesus is also fully divine. And that really matters as well. You know, if, if you want to be united to another human being, if you want to talk to another human being, there's, there's only so much another human can do for you, right? There's only so much problem solving and advice that they can give you. But the fact that Jesus is fully God means that when we pray, and we can pray to Jesus now, even though he's not on earth, he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, communicating with us. It means that actually he has power. Right? He has authority. He has ability to change situations and places. So again, if you have a problem in a relationship or a problem in life, it's not just kind of putting some wishful thinking out there. We actually are in communication with someone who can change things. Right? And that is very, very important when you think about any sort of challenge, that actually Jesus has the name which is above every other name, and his power is at work. His power is at work in your life, in your relationships, in your finances. His power is at life, at work in you if you are united with Christ. And he's committed to you. He's committed to your good. He's committed to your healing. He's committed to your salvation. He is alongside you. So that's the nature of who Christ is. But actually, the, the main thing that Paul wants to say today is it's not just about who Christ is by his character. It's actually about how we mirror the same posture and the same mind that Christ has. Uh, think about this for a minute, right? If you were God, if you were the most powerful being that's ever existed in the cosmos, I mean, some of you will find that easier than others to, if you have some sort of secret grandeur kind of complex going on. Um, imagine you were God, right? And you look at Earth, and you look at all the war, you look at all the conflict, you look at all the squabbling and family stuff that's going on around. Um, I wonder what power, what influence, what authority, what might would you exercise, what huge marvel-like superpower would you bring to bear on the earth to bang people's heads together and sort them out and get them going in the right direction again? A um, bit like, you know, if you're a parent and you, you, you know, you're watching your, your kids squabbling away, like, what do you do about the problem? Well, if you are thinking the same thing as I am with some, you know, ray gun or, you know, changing the world or doing all this different stuff... Probably Jesus did the complete exact opposite to what you and I would have done. Because this is what it says that Jesus did when he saw the problem of brokenness and sin in the world. He did this in verse 6. Who being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. By being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Like, just grasp the different parts of that statement. God, the most supreme being in all of history, in all of creation, who flung stars into space, becomes the most limited human poor man. He becomes a servant, a servant to humble himself even to death on a cross. That's what Jesus did for you. He went from the most powerful, the most extreme, the most incredible place all the way down to an ignominious death, a horrible, nasty, horrific death on a cross 2,000 years ago for you. It is the most astonishing move. And Paul says in verse 1, if that means something to you, if that means anything to you at all, if that encourages you, if that comforts you, if that changes your life, then have the same attitude. Have the same mind. Have the same heart as Christ in the way that you treat other people. You see it? 
unbelievably challenging. He doesn't even just say, like, do what Christ does. Anyone have one of those WWJD thing, bands like back in the turn of the millennium? I guess that's about when they were, weren't they? I mean, they were super good. You know, do what Jesus did. Really helpful. Helped me when I was 18, I can tell you. Um, but he doesn't even just say that. He says, don't even just do what Jesus did. Have the same heart. Have the same attitude. Have the very same mind of Christ. Um, now, I, I love uh, living in L.A. We've been here for, for two years now. Absolutely love this place. I love the ambition. I love the creativity. I love all the amazing different types of people who come to live in L.A. from all over the world, including that weird island in the northwest of Europe. Um, I love it. I love the fact that you know people have such dreams when they come to L.A. They, they come f- with ambition and all of those kind of things. It's an up and a right kind of place, isn't it? It's like, what do we want to do this year? We want to do more than we did last year. Like, how am I, is my career going to work out this year? I want it to be more successful than it was last year. How's my bank balance got to look? It's got to be better than it was last year. How's my influence? It's got to be more influence than I had last year. That's the very human way that the world works. But Paul actually offers a really stark warning to the idea of a kind of self-centered, up-and-to-the-right kind of attitude. Um, Paul says this little phrase, he says, vain conceit in verse 3. He says, be careful, do nothing out of vain conceit. Now, vain conceit um, is a kind of interesting translation. It's actually like the, the words are glory empty in the Greek. Vain conceit is what happens when we are empty and we desire to be filled up recognized, appreciated by another person. You know, it's like, you know, there's nothing wrong at all with wanting to do good things or be ambitious and those kind of things. But Paul says, if you operate out of a place where you, haven't, you don't have enough in yourself, where God is not enough to you and you are looking for recognition, if you're looking for wealth, if you're looking for success, then basically it's like a drug. It's like a drug that you need more and more of all the time to fulfill you. You know, it's like, if I just get that job, then I'm going to be okay. Or if I just get into that relationship, I'm going to be okay. And then, of course, you get into that relationship where you get into that job and you find out you still have the same emptiness. You're still starved of the same glory that you were before you started. Paul says, don't operate out of that vain conceit because that vain conceit will kill you. And in relationship terms, of course, what it does is like if I am empty, if I am looking for you to fill me, to agree with me, to recognize me, if, you're looking, if I'm looking to you to give me what I need, then actually that's not a great relationship all the time, is it? It's like, because if I want to be ambitious, if I want to be successful, then what it really means is I've got to be more successful than you. Um, if I'm going to be wealthy, what I'm really saying is I've got to be more wealthy than you. You know, if I want to be appreciated, it means I need the attention and you don't need the attention. That's what vain conceit does. And so Paul says, do nothing out of vain conceit, but instead do everything out of humility. Do everything out of a servant heart. Consider others ahead of yourself. Now, I don't know how you feel about that word humility. It's not a word we we kind of value very highly uh, in society, I don't think, very often. But humility is exactly the word that describes what Christ brought to earth to us. Um, And I think we don't like humility because sometimes humility sounds like thinking badly of yourself, you know, like just hating yourself. There's a whole, like, I think there's a whole era in Christian thinking, maybe hundreds of years ago, when the whole idea of being a Christian was to hate yourself um, and just think of Jesus as being good. Like, that's not what humility is at all. 
Um, humility also is not what, what people from Northern Europe do a lot of, which is basically to self-deprecate, right? You know, you talk to someone on a golf course who seems very good, and you say, oh, do you, you play a bit? And they go, yeah, I'm not very good. I'm not very good. I'm just a bit rusty, but I play a bit. And then you go home, and you realize that they're actually on the PGA Tour. You know, that, that's like a classic uh, way of false humility. That is not the Christian idea. To be humble is not to think less of yourself. It's actually to think of yourself less. Humility is not to think of yourself less. It's to think less of yourself. It's to think of yourself less. Because actually, Paul says instead in verse 4, don't look to your own interests, but each of you are to look to the interests of others. That's what it means to be humble. It is to consider the point of view, the needs, the perspective, the, the, the situation, not from what we need, not from our own emptiness, not from our own brokenness, not from what we can get out of it and our power and our rights and all we want, but is to look at it from the perspective of others for what we can do. Now, Paul says, be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and one in mind. This is what Paul says is the key to having great relationships. And interestingly, on the flip side, Paul is revealing to us, particularly in a Christian sense, exactly what the devil does to, to kill churches, to get rid of Christian relationships. The number one thing, which he just spotted, so just quick tight tangent, but number one thing is he says, if Jesus isn't Lord, if, if you don't put Jesus central, then basically you'll die. You know, the church will die because it's not Christ-centered. But the second thing he says, that actually what the devil will always try and do is to divide, to rip apart relationships, to cause conflict, to cause people not to get on very well. There's the two fastest ways you can kill a church. So that's why Paul says, don't look to your own interests, but each of you look at the interest of the other. Be like-minded with the same love. Be one in spirit and one mind. Now, the early church, right, they had to deal with conflict all the time. I mean, we kind of look at them with romantic eyes, I think, as we read scripture. But the early church was full of different types of people, right? You, you had Jews with all of their history and their, their kind of rights as the people of God. Then you had Gentiles who were from a totally different perspective. Um, and then you had the Romans. And then they were all thrust together to be a family, to be a, God, a Christ-like family. I mean, it's a bit like, if you know anything of the Middle East, it's a bit like taking Palestinians and taking like Jew, Israeli Jews and throwing them in a church together and going, right, guys, here you are, you're in our family, get on with it. That's what it was like in the early church. Like, there were so many things that they had to figure out. Like, what about the Jewish law? What about circumcision? What about like, food that you're supposed to eat or not eat? There was all this kind of stuff, and yet Paul says to them, you have to be like-minded. You have to consider each other and love one another. Why? Because ultimately, that is what Jesus prayed for us. If you go to John 17, before Jesus went to heaven, he said, I pray that all of them, all believers, all the church, the global church, may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that, that, that nature of Christ again, may they, Christians, be in us, God, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The way that the world knows that Jesus is real, that he was sent by the Father, that he was who he said he was, is how, Jesus says, by the way that the church loves each other by the way that the church prefers each other, by the way that the church models love into a broken world, that is the way that the, the world will know who Jesus is. Isn't that challenging? I'm challenged by that. Anyway. Okay, so how do we do it? 
how do we actually live this stuff out in reality? What does Jesus have to say? What does Paul have to say? Well, actually, the answer is also in the incarnation, interestingly. Jesus says, John 20, Jesus says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So as God the Father sent Jesus into the world to reconcile humanity to himself, we are sent into the world to bring reconciliation and healing. That's how it works. I mean, communication, right? The whole world is kind of in a funny place, but it's not like conflict just started existing in the last 18 months. Obviously, it didn't. It's, we've seen more of it because it's been revealed with the stress and the tensions of COVID, hasn't it? But like, changes in how people relate to one another have been going on for, for hundreds, hundreds of years. Um, I mean, if you can remember back, you know, those of you who are at least 150 years old, I'm looking at John Lewis, um, not really. Um, if you had a conflict with someone, right, 100, 150 years ago, what, what, what would be your options for how you could go and deal with the other person? What, what could you do? Shout it out. Oh, I can't hear it, sorry. Shout loud. A what? A duel, yeah, okay, you could have had a duel, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> you totally ruined my sermon, dude. Just because I said you're 150 years old. Yeah, you could have a duel. Okay, you could go and see the person, right? Okay, let's use, that. let's use that as the kind of wider context of what you were clearly trying to say when you said a duel with swords, okay? Um, what else could you do if you had an issue with someone? Like, what, what, else, what other way could you communicate with that person? Maybe I should have phrased my question better. Write them a letter, thank you. Congratulations for giving the correct answer in the sermon. Unlike the person over there who just made a mockery of my sermon. Not really, just a joke, okay. So you could have written them a letter, right? Um, you, could, you could have written a letter and letters were complicated, they were difficult, so you'd take time, you'd think about what you were gonna say, you would kind of send the letter, that person would take time, they would think, they would send the letter back, you could do that. Or you could go and see the person. If you went to see the person, obviously, in a confrontational setting, you've got what? You've got eye contact, you've got you know, emotion, you've got conversation, you can discuss things. Then along came like the telephone, right? Mr. Bell, the, the wonderful things of the telephone. And it, obviously that took out, it took out that ability to look people in the eye, it took out that ability to kind of read all the body language that's so important. But it still gave you that ability to kind of discuss, to talk, to have emotion, to hear tone and all those kind of things. Like from there, we went into like fax and email. And no one remembers facts. It's like a sort of dark thing that happened once upon a time. But email, right, and particularly in corporate settings, if you have a conflict, if you've got some problem in a relationship on email, what do you do? You hit reply straight away. You don't think about it. You don't, like, wait. You just smash it out. And if you're really angry with someone, particularly in a corporate setting, what do you do? You hit reply all. Right? That's straight up, don't you? Everybody in your organization that you can think of, you, you copy them in to prove your point and how correct you are. No body language, no emotion, like no context, you know, just straight up in there. Like from email, we then went to messaging, right? Like back in the days, the ICQs and the MSNs, and now we've got text and everything like that. Basically a little bit like email, except it's even more concise, right? You've got even less characters to say what you really feel. Anyone ever fallen out with somebody over a text conversation? Can't be honest. Happens all the time, right? Why? Because there's no context, because there's no emotion, because there's no ability other than emojis to really kind of express and listen and dialogue and talk about what you're doing. But even from like that place, we've now moved even further because in particular, as we've seen over the last 18 months, we've moved into this social media comments on 
blog posts kind of space. And that is also stripped of all of the emotion. It's stripped of all the ability to dialogue really well. It's stripped of all the ability to ask questions and all this kind of stuff. And instead, it's like positional warfare. Right? That's what social media looks like. Right? If I have a position and I want to make a statement about what I believe about something, what do I do? I put up a post or I comment on somebody else's post. Somebody who I know sees my comment. What do they do? They disagree with my comment. They put up their position, which is opposed to my position. Now, because of the way the algorithms and everything work in social media, people who are on my side of the debate, they all pile in, right? You know, all those people also comment, they may be even more extreme in their views than I'm in my views, and they set up a whole position of this is the right position. What happens on the other side? My friend, they set up their position. All their friends, they pile in, they bring in other articles, they bring in things, and before you know it, you have got literal trench warfare going on. As far as I know, no one has ever been reconciled over a social media conversation about positions. It doesn't happen, does it? It's literally two sides of an argument set up in opposition, and then we feed ourselves, because that's what the algorithms do. They feed us more of our side. Because that's, they want to keep you engaged. They want the clickbait, so they feed you more of what you already agreed with. They feed you more of your perspective. And what does your friend have? They have more of their perspective fed to them. Until before you know it, two people who were like this close and having a good discussion are now on literal on opposite sides of the world, looking at each other with suspicion. Like, what happened to my friend? They've just become an outrageous extremist, is basically what you look at. And then what we do is we look at the person who's on the other side of the debate, and we go, well, if I believe A, they believe B, which must mean that they also believe C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. Because why? Because that's exactly how we work. We put people into the boxes, right? We put them into that kind of person. And we go, well, if they believe K, they are off on one, right? They are not a Christian. And that is not a Christian perspective. We look at people with the most highest level of suspicion. And I think that's what we've seen, right? We've seen it in across media over the last 18 months, particularly, but it's been happening for a long time. We see it in the comments sections. We see it in Instagram and Facebook. And we see it on like all of the different platforms that we have. And we are divided. We are separated. And so what is the answer to that? How do we deal if that is the nature of how things are out there? Well, actually, we are called to be people of the incarnation, which is to go to one another, to shortcut, to short-circuit that incredible divisive position and to go and be with one another. There's a guy um, who I met up with a, a bunch of weeks ago now, and we'd not spoken for a long time. And I think, you know, during the pandemic, you know, they'd come, that person had come to believe that I'd changed a lot of my views, and I was absolutely the guy at the end of the spectrum now because of things that I might have said or not said, or things that I might have liked or not liked on social media or anything like that. And I'd come to believe that, oh, yeah, they must be at the other end of the spectrum because, you know, they're different from me. And so we kind of phoned him up and I said, look, can we, just, can we just talk? And we went and we talked. And what we found as we talked is that, oh, actually, you know, when you said that, did you, did you mean that or did you mean that? Oh, oh, right, I see. Oh, sorry, I misunderstood. And we just went through and through and through and through until what we realized is that actually well, we were not two opposite ends of the spectrum, angry and cross with one another. We were actually standing right next to each other, believing like 99% the same things. It's just that we had a slightly different outworking of how we thought that that thing should be outworked in the world. That was basically it. We are called to be people who go to one another. Jesus says in Matthew 18, if you have an issue with your brother or your sister, what do you do? You go to them. 
You go and be with them. You go and listen to them. You go and hear their perspective. You go and work out your differences with them. Why? Because ultimately it has kingdom ramifications. And if you don't, and you come to brothers and sisters in Christ, you can't agree, then basically what you're doing is destroying the witness of Christ in the world. It's kind of like that. So go to one another. And as we go, we go and we ask, we ask for forgiveness. We go not to persuade our brother that we are right and they are wrong, that they need to sort themselves out, that they are in fact that kind of awful person that we suspect them to be. But we actually go to listen, to care for them, to value their interests ahead of our interests, to not think of what we need, but think of what they need. And that's challenging, right? I mean, that is super challenging. But I think we are in this moment as a nation, we're in this moment across the world, you know, where this is, this is something that it, it, the devil is doing to attack the church, to divide Christians over all sorts of different issues, to divide people, to conquer people, to cause people to leave the church, to cause people to walk away because they look at the church and say, that's just a bunch of people who can't get on well. God calls us to unity. He calls us to this like-mindedness of Christ. And so I wonder as I close today, like, who is that person to you? Who is that person? Who is the person who maybe 18 months ago, two years ago, you, you hung out, you drank coffee, um, you had barbecues together, whatever, and now you've lost contact, that family member, that other brother or sister in Christ, that person who you now have suspicion and slight degree of anxiety or even animosity towards. Who is that person? And by the way, if that person, as you think about them, you're thinking, absolutely, that person should come and see me. It is that, that is the problem here. Then just, just like rephrase that question in your conversation with the Holy Spirit. It is on you and not on them. Shall we pray together? Father, you know, conflict is really hard. It's really hard because there's so much stress in our world. There's so much pressure. There's so much that feeds us towards division. 